If you will, open your Bibles uh, to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 21, and we're going to pick up our reading once again in verse 27. Uh, the book of Acts, chapter 21, we'll begin in verse 27, we'll be reading down through chapter 22, uh, verse 21. Uh, I must tell you, uh, that I was a little disappointed when I walked in this morning that there were not tables overflowing with food over here to my right, to your left. I thought that that was going to be a, a regular thing uh, that you begun uh, last week. And uh, uh, I am very appreciative of the kindness that uh, you uh, showed uh, to, to us. I'm very thankful uh, for our uh, 20 uh, years together and look forward to many, many more. Uh, it is a gracious church uh, that has allowed me uh, to do this and to do what I love uh, for, for so long. Uh, I find it uh, kind of a peculiar blessing of my stage of life, uh, uh, being now on Medicare, uh, that uh, I can't sleep. And so uh, one of the virtues of that is... Uh, I get up and begin to study and do the things that God has called me to do. I get ready to preach each Sunday. And so uh, uh, about 4 o'clock this morning, uh, I'm up and uh, drinking my first cup of coffee and, again, getting prepared uh, to do uh, that which I love. It's never a burden uh, to get started with each day. And, again, uh, you make that possible. So thank you very much. I mentioned last week my anxiety regarding approaching this portion of Acts. And I have found, and that's not an unusual feeling, to, to look at a text and go, now how, how am I going to deal with it? How am I going to preach it? What's the relevance to this congregation? Uh, even what, what, what does the text mean? And so, uh, but I've found uh, over the years that the, the deeper uh, and the harder that I dig, uh, the more fascinating and the more understandable, and I believe the more applicable, those passages become uh, to me and, and then I hope uh, to you. So we're going to continue our journey through Acts by diving into this final section that chronicles the arrest, the incarceration, and finally Paul's transportation to Rome where he will bear witness to the power and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His providence was difficult, but his proclamation remained unchanged, that of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can certainly rightly say the book of Acts is the inspired record of the activities of the apostles and their associates. They, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gave earth-shaking testimony to the truth and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did this at the cost of that which they once held dear. And each one of the apostles were persecuted, and all but John died martyr's death, again giving testimony to the truthfulness and to the power of the gospel that they proclaimed. The book of Acts illustrates that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and his church and that that enduring church will fulfill Christ's command to go into all the world and bear witness to him 
And we do it with the confidence of his promise. And I am with you always, no matter the providence. I am with you always, no matter the locale. I am with you always, no matter the difficulty. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So let's read this morning. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, the him being the apostle Paul, crying out, men of Israel, help this man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the court that all of Israel was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. And he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the, of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia and a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, uh, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I, as I journeyed, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as and I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven shone, suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that's appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and, I, and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know what in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those, uh, <coughs> beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. It is your spirit that has inspired this very word. It is your spirit that has preserved it for us. And we depend on that very same spirit to so work in us that we may understand that we may speak clearly and that those hearing may understand and that your spirit would apply uh, the great truths of your word to our lives lord that you would work to make us holy to make us more like our savior jesus christ lord i pray that today leaving here we would say not only that it's good to be in the house of the lord but that we can never ever be the same again. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I noted last week at least a couple of interesting things related to this particular uh, portion of Acts. Again, a great amount of the material in Acts is devoted uh, to this arrest and the subsequent uh, transportation uh, to Rome. And so that's important to uh, the book of Luke. It's important uh, to the history of the proclamation of the gospel throughout that known world. And we also ask the question uh, that is raised by some commentators. Now, again, I do not really raise this question, but was Paul wrong or was he even disobedient? Uh, for going to Jerusalem, even, because, even though he was warned as to what would happen both by other believers and also by the very Spirit of God, telling him that you're going to go and you're going to be persecuted in every city. Now, one answer to that is, well, it doesn't make any difference whether I go to Jerusalem or any other city because what? I'm going to be persecuted for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, I'm not really on board with that. I am a little more open to the business that we ended on last week. Should he have gone and should he have agreed and should he have submitted to the elders of the church 
at Jerusalem and gone through this ritual of cleansing when he is so absolutely adamant that none of those things are essential. They're not pertinent. They're not relevant to salvation. There's no good work that we do that can make us more acceptable to God when once we are cleansed by the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and he makes us righteous in him. So it seems that might have been a bit confusing. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm just examining the question. Now, I want you to be sure when I say those things. We are not indicting the Word of God as being wrong. We're not denying its inspiration and its infallibility, okay? We, we, we are not in any way uh, saying that there's something wrong with the Word of God. It's simply true that many times the writers of Scripture inspired by God's Holy Spirit tells us about the flaws of the characters that they're writing about. And one of the points of telling us about the flaws of the characters that they write about is that none of them is the Lord Jesus Christ and their sin and their error and their frailty and their failure is one of the things that reminds us that what we need is a Savior and none of the characters in the Bible are Him except the one whose name is Jesus Christ. And so we're saying sometimes the Bible tells us about the errors of others. So maybe that's the case, but it is simply an interesting question, and it's a question that, that perplexes me uh, just uh, a bit. And so we'll just keep that out there and as we work through in the coming weeks. Now, sometimes I talk to you uh, and mention some, some of the benefits of, of, of an outline. It helps me in my study just to begin to clump the information together in an understandable way. You, you break a text apart, then you put it back together and you go back and forth because you want to see the whole and you want to see the parts and you want to see the parts in view of the whole and you want to see the whole in view of the parts, okay? And so that's why the outline, and you'll notice that the points are the arrest, the address, and the assignment. Nothing magical about that, but you can kind of remember uh, that. That is alliterated. That means I get to keep my Baptist preacher boy card because I've alliterated at least once this year, okay? But I, I really, uh, I, I bought a, 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 an old commentary, used commentary at Southern Seminary's bookstore back earlier this year, $5 for this masterful book by G. Campbell Morgan, a British pastor that actually preceded the great D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And if you don't know either one of those guys, shame on you. You should, okay? But in reading this commentary, his outline, and, and I, you know, it was one of those things uh, that we, if we weren't on the heels of a plagiarism scandal, I'd have just stolen it and gone right up. I'm kidding. Come on now. Okay, just kidding there. But his, his alliterated outline was the man, the mob, and the mother church. And so you can just stick that in the back of your mind because we, we'll try to come back and make a, a point relevant uh, to that uh, here as we conclude uh, this morning. But what we see here as Paul is assaulted and then ultimately arrested, why? Because he's in the temple, he's, he's obeying, he's submitting himself to the authority of these elders there at Jerusalem. He's going through the purification rites and the Jews seize on that to undermine and even to destroy uh, the uh, Apostle Paul. And it, it's, it's simply an illustration that, that those 
that oppose God, when, when, when the ultimate issue is the issues of truth and reality and, and the gospel, there really, there really isn't any compromise. And, and so those that oppose God are willing to go to any lengths because God must be destroyed he must be dismissed, he must be deemed uh, irrelevant, or you must simply reinvent your God so that he is conducive and complementary to all that you want to say and all that you want to do. So as we're going through this cultural war, and it is ultimately a spiritual war, it is the, the testimony to kingdoms that have been in conflict since the fall of Satan, there is a reality that it is a zero-sum war. Somebody wins and destroys the other, okay? Now, now, please hear me. Now, let me kind of pat the brakes here a little bit. The enemies of God not only don't want to destroy his message and destroy him, they want to destroy you, okay? Now, that, that's a fact. And they will not stop. And, and let me tell you something. A, a, a lie is no obstacle, it is no obstacle to go through to condemn the people of God, okay? And, and, and the truth is not a barrier to the indictment of the people of God as well. We'll see here, they're perfectly willing to lie about the Apostle Paul, to fabricate the story for the desired outcome. And so, we are charged to demolish the strongholds of the people of the devil, of the evil ones, of the unregenerate. We are to dismantle, we are to demolish, we are to destroy their strongholds by which they defend their position of their ungodly outlook upon life. But our goal, unlike the goal of the godless, is not to destroy them. Our goal is for the sake of redemption. Our goal is to dismantle that upon which they are standing. Their goal, remember, is not only to destroy what we stand on, it's to destroy us. It's a little different. You see the distinction? So just remember that, yes, we are in a battle. And here's the good news. We have the superior weapons. We have the weapons that have the ultimate power. And we have and we are participants in the victory that was earned at the cross of Calvary by our Lord Jesus Christ. I heard a, something a, a few weeks back, and, and they kind of went back and forth about our responsibilities in the church. Are we, the, are we building bridges or do we erect barriers? And folks, both are true. Both are necessary. Yes, we want to build bridges into the lives of the unbelieving world so that we may speak to them of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to erect bar barriers that they do not infiltrate us and cause us to compromise the message uh, of the gospel. What was happening in, in Paul's case is the, the people that did not want to turn loose with, of the Jewish rituals had infiltrated the church and they were a problem, okay? And so there, there was a sense where uh, there should have been some barriers, some instructions to say, listen, if you want to do your Jewish thing, there's a limit to how much we're going to allow you to advocate that and, and how much we're going to tolerate that in the church. And so there, it is right to say there are certain barriers. A few years ago, the Methodist, 
who are now in the midst of this horribly messy split. Their, their motto was, I think I got the order, uh, open doors, open minds, open hearts. Well, their minds got so open, their brains fell out, okay? Just to be honest about it. And, and, and so, but this idea, we're, we're, we're open and we're going to remove the barriers and we're building bridges. And what happened? The ungodly came in and basically destroyed anything that remained of biblical Christianity within the Methodist movement. Of course, many are, are, have, have left the, the larger group, the denomination, because of the fact that this group has forsaken biblical truth. I had to have two tires replaced this, this week. I went to the Honda dealership, and um, I forgot how the conversation got going, but the service tech was trying to wrap up. I was in a hurry to get out of there. didn't have uh, long to, to get into it. Uh, maybe I had, the, I had my big book, book satchel with me. I'd been studying in there while I was waiting. And uh, comes find out he's, he's a member of a local Methodist church. And I, I know several people that go to that Methodist church. And I said, well, are you in or out? Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. Methodist church is splitting. There are groups that are dropping out. And here's the problem with Methodism. The big M Methodist owns the buildings and the properties. And the little M churches have to buy their properties from the big M. And there's a whole bunch of others. But I was just curious, you in or out? And he said, well, we're in. We're such a small church, and, and we're just afraid it's going to split us, and, and we're going to be fractured over uh, these issues, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, listen, if you're not already fractured over it, what's being preached? What, what is being said from the pulpit that do not bring these issues to the attention? And what is being denied in terms of truth that allows y'all to think that you're in some kind of agreement that you can worship in the same building and call yourself one church? The issues are already there and somebody is sweeping them under the rugs and they're going to come out at some point. So you might as well go ahead and lance that boil. And so, anyway. So, Remember, at the end of the day, there is no compromise between those who oppose God and the people of God. All right, to the text. Verse 27, we see, first of all, the arrest, these, these false accusations uh, against uh, Paul. Uh, they, they, just, uh, they just basically created them out of the air. They see him with a Gentile. They think, okay, we can just say that he took the Gentile, the Greek man, Trophimus, into the temple. And, and that is in a, a violation of, uh, of, of our understanding of the holiness of the temple. In fact, within the temple, there was a, a wall with an inscription on that wall. Uh, and the inscription read, no foreigner may enter within the bear cave which surrounds the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That was printed there. So they could see Gentiles, you can come to the court of Gentiles, but you can go no further. And if you do, and here's the thing, the Romans were willing to allow the Jews to enforce that capital sentence there. They were willing to, to compromise enough with them to say, listen, if somebody transgresses that well-announced uh, 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 decision, then 
we'll, we're going to let you go through whatever's necessary to enforce that. Now, the first thing is Paul is already submitting to the rituals uh, to cleanse himself from being in the Gentile lands. makes no sense that he would have taken a Gentile into the, the area forbidden for uh, the, the Gentiles. Notice the language there in verse 28. And I got a lesson in this this week, in fact. Everyone, everywhere, everyone and everywhere, anybody, no one, always be aware of the universals because somebody's not telling the truth because everybody and nobody is never true, all right? So just, just be aware of that. So the first thing is that, that he's, he's done this. He's gone, told everyone, and he's gone everywhere teaching against. Notice the, the threefold division here. Against the people, the law, and this place. The threefold testimony to the uniqueness of the Jews, to, to their, their being God's chosen people, that this man Paul has undermined the people of God, the law of God, and the place of God. That's three pretty heavy indictments. And so basically what ensues there is essentially uh, a riot. And Luke lets us know in verse 29 what had actually happened, but that Trophimus had been with Paul, but he had not brought him into uh, the city. But when this riot breaks out, they close off the temple area, and they are prepared to kill Paul right then and there. Look at verse 31. They were seeking to kill him. And we're told that word came to the tribune of the cohort. There was a, a building there on the temple grounds called the Fortress Anatonia. And it's where it housed a, uh, a group of Roman soldiers, and their charge was, don't let the Jews get out of hand. We don't want a riot. We, we don't want an uprising. We're, you, you keep things quiet and you put down all of the unrest. And so this uh, cohort actually had a thousand soldiers in it, okay? And they were quick to react and they saved the Apostle Paul's life here because they would have killed him. And so they come and, and they're, they're in the midst of it. Look there in verse four, uh, 34. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some were shouting another. There was complete chaos there uh, on the temple crowns and the tribune was very irritated and he could not figure out what was going on. And so they take and grab Paul and they deliver him out from the clutches of that mob, again, saving his life there. And so... They're going to place him under arrest because, again, they're not going to put up with anything that causes unrest there on the temple. And, uh, indeed, they're crying away with him, which means what? Kill him. They had a murderous uh, intent there. And so beginning in verse 37, we see basically two stages of the address that Paul makes to his accusers. Now, the first thing that he, the first group he wants to speak to, or the first person he wants to speak to, is to that tribune, the kind of a, one commentator said, kind of like a colonel, okay? You got a thousand men, and so he's, he's like a colonel in the modern day military. So he's a high ranking officer, 
And Paul requests that he's able to explain himself, uh, to speak to this uh, tribune, okay? And so he says, first of all, that I'm a, I'm a Jew, and I'm from the city of Tarsus. And notice there again when he mentions his, uh, uh, his, his hometown, uh, that I'm a Jew, and it's no obscure city. Now, we've talked about that several times. Luke likes that. That's a litotos, okay? It, it is a word, it is a, an affirmation of a positive by way of an understated negative. What is he saying? Tarsus is a significant city, population-wise and culture. It is no obscure city. It's well known for its culture, for its academics, for, for its strategic place in the Roman world, and that's where I am from. Now, when making the request to the tribune, the tribune responds to him, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian? Then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 of the assassins. So the tribune thinks that he's some kind of uh, revolutionary, a zealot that has come to continue uh, the uh, the, uh, the revolt against Rome. A few years earlier, an Egyptian had come in. He had led an actual revolt, had about 4,000 men. Notice uh, the term there, the uh, assassins, okay? And that is a, a word taken from the word psyche uh, for sword. And so it is a word that came to be associated with a group of terrorists within Judaism that were always trying to foster a revolt uh, against the Romans. And so this particular man's efforts were thwarted and he disappears into the desert. They never arrested him, they never killed him. And so the tribune says, are you that Egyptian who we defeated a few years back in trying to foster a revolt uh, against us? And Paul says, no, no, I, I, am, I am not that individual. And so he explains that to the tribune, and then as they're taking him up the steps into this fortress Anatonia, he makes the request to speak to the crowd. And so they quiet the crowd, and he begins to speak to them in Hebrew, in my translation, uh, the Hebrew language, which is really Aramaic is what he began to talk to them in. And he begins to address them. And notice he says, brothers and fathers. He speaks to them respectfully. He doesn't say, you morons, what are you thinking out there? You, bu you bunch of crazy people, you, you evil people. He's very respectful in addressing those who oppose him. And we should always attempt to be at, at least a certain level respectful. I, I, I got called on the carpet this week, well, a number of times, by my eight-year-old granddaughter. And uh, I wore that beautiful T-shirt that you got me uh, the other day, and you missed a few of my favorite sayings, I must say, but I'm glad they're not on the T-shirt. And, and so one of the sayings, my little granddaughter goes, flabby loser. And she goes, Paul, Paul. Should a Christian be calling someone else a flabby loser? Is that really a Christian, Paul Paul? Now you need to know. 
I have repented of such behavior long ago. I now call at least one of the previously flabby losers the lean victor, okay? And his countenance has just, I mean, he's flourished under that. So again, we, we don't use those things uh, anymore. But it is interesting. We want to be careful. We respect people as image bearers of God. And we're not immediately indicting them for their foolishness. And of course, what Paul is trying to do here is establish a, a connection, a point of identity. I mentioned a moment ago, he's, he's in a sense building a bridge. Uh, I, I am not unlike you. In fact, I, I am a Jew, and he, he's going to give them uh, very much his, the, the background uh, that uh, uh, should have impressed them. Uh, I, I'm, from, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus, verse, verse 3, chapter 22, uh, brought up in this city. Again, uh, his parents evidently brought him to Jerusalem at a young age where he was educated at the very well-respected uh, Pharisee Gamaliel. Okay, so, so you, you should know that, that I understand the law, I'm respectful of the law, I'm obedient uh, to the law, and in fact, not only that, but I was absolutely a zealot to persecute this way. I was, I was all about, I was committed, I was 100% in to persecuting those who identified uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. I went so far that I went to the Sanhedrin and I actually got letters of introduction so that I could go to Damascus, I could go to the synagogue, and I say, I'm here to purge the city of those who have identified with this claimed resurrected Savior. And so you need to understand that. And Now, in, in trying to kind of develop this, this point of identity, he is doing it for the sake of highlighting the contrast. Say it simply, this is who I was, this is who I am now. It, it, it's very much a but God. This is who I was. You would recognize me. In fact, probably some of you remember me and remember what I did. But he wants to get to the but God. Look there in uh, verse 6. He describes his conversion experience. This is his testimony. This is the second of three occasions that Luke expends quite a bit of space to communicate what happened to Paul there on that Damascus road. And it should be no surprise to us that a holy God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself in a light that is so bright it obscures the noonday sun. That, that he is the lightest of all lights. He is the brightest of all lights. And in that revelation of himself to Paul, he blinds Paul. And so Paul is forced to your knees and he must answer the question that that one who is the light of the world, he asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, Jesus in his identity with the church. And Paul, Saul asked him, verse 8, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now, one thing that in, intrigues me a little bit about all of these three testimonies, where is the kerygma? Where is the testimony 
to, I came to understand the accomplishment of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why does he not unpack that for us? And again, it may be just Luke doing some editing. Maybe, maybe Paul did here. But I think here's kind of a key to this. He knew, just as he knew on that, in that first encounter, he knew exactly who Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be and what he had actually accomplished. He knew he claimed to be the Son of God. He knew he came to die an atoning death, and he knew he was raised from the dead. And so I think in stating this business of, I am Jesus of Nazareth, he knows that this first audience knows the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think it's right there in a nutshell in naming the name. Now, that doesn't mean that that's, that's the, always the way we share the gospel, okay? He had a group of people listening that were probably familiar enough that they know, knew the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't have to unpack it. We're increasingly in an age where what? We're going to have to unpack, unpack everything. We're going to have to explain everything to people because they don't, do not have the background maybe that some of us older folks have. And so Paul is metaphorically and literally uh, brought... Uh, to his knees by an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I can't answer, well, I think I can. I, I, I shouldn't say that. Why does God not deal with all unbelievers in the same way? Dramatically appearing to them as a blinding light in the middle of the day, knocking them off of their feet and speaking to them in an audible voice. And I think this is part of the answer. That he has chosen the foolishness of preaching to shame the wise. He has chosen that the sufficient means for the salvation of each and every person who will ever believe is the proclamation of the Word of God. It is the proclamation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that proclamation of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that which was accomplished on the Damascus Road through the blinding light and the personal appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ is accomplished by the Word and by the Spirit as an enduring testimony to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian today, you've had a Damascus Road experience. You were going in one direction with your agenda. And Jesus Christ intercepted you. And he dramatically turned you around by the gospel. By the gospel. You had a personal encounter with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that all who come to Christ must come to this, this crisis moment where that which they know about themselves and they know about the gospel becomes applied to their lives. Look at verse 16 now. He begins to recount this interaction, uh, post-dramatic uh, uh, incident on the Damascus Road. He begins to speak to this one Ananias, who is sent uh, to him to, to minister to him, and Ananias' words to Saul. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Another one of the verses for those that want to claim that in order to be a Christian, 
you must be baptized. Or through your baptism, you will be saved. Now, I'm a little cautious about my, my Greek grammar and translation skills. And so this is a little bit of a tentative offering from, from the Greek itself. But I'm going to give you a theological reason, and I'll give you kind of a, a linguistic, uh, a grammatical reason that this is not a verse that teaches that baptism is the cause of salvation or that it's necessary for salvation. In fact, one way I think the phrases and the text, this verse 16 could be translated would be like this. And now why do you wait, having stood up, having come to be baptized, and having your sins washed away, that those sins were washed away prior to your coming to be baptized, and you have called, previously you have called upon the name of the Lord. You're baptized with a view toward the fact that your sins have been washed away and that you have called upon the name of the Lord. And I think that's a reasonable way of looking at the grammar. Now, a couple of uh, theological explanations. Number one, baptism is a work. Paul says clearly what? We're not saved by works, okay? That's excluded. So you're not saved by your baptism. The other thing is in the Bible, quite often, a symbol actually represents all that that that, that symbol is there to represent. Let me give you, let me illustrate real quickly. Most of you leaving here today will either exit on Mack Hicks or Clayton Road, and most of you will go out to Old Springville Road, and there's a big red sign there at the end of Mack Hicks and Clayton Road. And that sign says what? Stop. Stop. Now that represents the power and authority of the government to impose a fine on you if you choose not to stop. Now, if I were to ask you, when you leave here today, are you going to stop at the end of the road? And you say, well, yeah. And I would say, why? You'd say, because of the stop sign. Now, does that stop sign reach out and you know, block your car or reach into your window and stomp your brakes? The, the stop sign doesn't cause you effectually to stop, but it represents the power of the state, it represents the reality of the necessity that you stop. You stop because of the stop sign. You stop because of the symbol without it being the causative actor in causing you to stop. And that's the way baptism is. Baptism represents the whole of salvation. Okay? And so sometimes in speaking of salvation, it speaks of it as a baptism. And so uh, I don't think, again, this is not a verse that teaches baptismal regeneration. It teaches simply that baptism is to follow our calling on the name of the Lord and the fact that our sins are washed away uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's move to the final issue very quickly. There in verse 17, the assignment. Again, in this portion of his testimony, he talks about the fact that after this encounter with Ananias, he returns to Jerusalem, he has a trance, and has this vision of the Lord, and he receives instructions, you're going to have to leave Jerusalem. And I'm not sure, I, as I read this, is he making an excuse? 
that he doesn't really need to leave because he's one of them. Kind of hard to, to, to read into what he's got in mind. But whatever he has in mind, Jesus has enough to say, no, 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 no. I don't care what you're saying. Here's my plan. You go away to the Gentiles. You, the, the Jew of Jews, in testimony to the transforming grace that has come to you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to go proclaim to those people that you wouldn't even speak to on the street. You're going to go love them. You're going to go serve them. And, and you're going to uh, be, be a catalyst for building the true people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to be the agent by which the Great Commission is being fulfilled, and, and you're going to press the gospel to the furthest reaches of the known world. And so that is Paul's assignment directly from the Lord himself. Now, one final thing. I mentioned G. Campbell Morgan's outline, the mother church. Interesting thing. Talked about bridges and barriers, didn't we? Where's the church for the balance of Acts? Where's the Jerusalem church? Why, why are they not mentioned? Had they so accommodated those that were undermining the gospel with the various tenets of Judaism that they became irrelevant to the spread of the gospel? I don't know. An argument from silence is always a weak argument, okay? But it is interesting that he, he notices that. And it's just a reminder to us that even there with the apostles and even there with the witness of the Spirit and even there with all the miracles and everything, that when we become too fascinated and too, too covetous of the things of the world and those that oppose God and we try to accommodate and assimilate, we're in danger of what Jesus warns out in terms of when the salt loses its saltiness. And we need to be reminder, reminded of Yes, we want to build bridges, but we better make sure there's a barrier that doesn't allow those that we're seeking to communicate the gospel to and those we're trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in reaching out to them, they're not influencing us to compromise the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here Paul recounts his conversion. He uh, is rescued uh, from the mob. Uh, he continues that testimony by speaking of uh, being sent, his commissioning to go uh, to uh, the Gentiles. And that's, that's where we're going to pause. We're going to have to leave Paul there uh, for this week. But, but it is a reminder that sometimes in our proclamation of the gospel, we're going to have to speak to those that are benign or benevolent, and we're going to have to speak to those that are hostile. That, 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 would, that they're going to do everything they can, and they'll tell you. Not only do I want to destroy your message and destroy your God, I want to destroy you too in the process. And so that's why, again, we need to be entrenched in the Word of God and knowledgeable as to what we believe and why we believe it. We need to be those who constantly are seeking and aware of the power of the Spirit that's necessary. And, and we're talking this morning. You know, human life is, is fragile. And the older I get, the more I'm reminded of, of that reality. And 
this isn't exactly a parallel. It's, it's, we need to always be aware, of at least to our own fragility. We, we have a, a, a God who, who is, whose power is without limits. But we must constantly be availed to that power through the filling of the Spirit, or we indeed will become impotent and become useless and become compromised in accomplishing the task for which he's called us. And so we see here, uh, Paul's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go to jail. But the destination is ultimately Rome. And we'll continue this next week. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word to us. A reminder of the hostility of our world. Whether they be Jew or Gentile, whether they be religious or irreligious, spiritual or unspiritual, whatever the category they fall in, when they are pressed, they're haters of God, they're haters of His message, and they're haters of His people. And we need to be aware of the, the, the place and the time in which we live. Lord, uh, the world has always been a world that was hostile. They were hostile to your son, and they were hostile to his first representatives. And so, God, I pray that we would be faithful, that we would be those who are filled with the Spirit, and we're prepared uh, to go into a world and be salt and light, that we would shine light in the darkness and be willing to receive in us uh, their hatred because they love their deeds of darkness. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.